I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 82 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. There are a few things on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. Two of them are this, he lived and he died. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus of Nazareth is easily one of, if not the most controversial figure of history. Obviously, the New Testament offers the most details about Jesus' life and teaching, but a number of sources outside of the Bible mention and or discuss Jesus at length. For all the debates surrounding the life of Jesus among historians, there are three details about Jesus on which virtually all scholars of antiquity are in near universal agreement. Those three things are this. Jesus of Nazareth was an actual person of history. There it is. Jesus of Nazareth was baptized by John the Baptist. Virtually everyone agrees on that. And the third thing is that he was crucified by the order of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. So, in tonight's text, Jesus is going to die. But before that, before the penultimate passage of Matthew's gospel, and really of Christianity itself, let's frame this climactic tragedy of Matthew's biography with a flashback. Before the Last Supper... Before Jesus agonized in the garden, before he was arrested, before he was denied by his disciples, before he was abandoned by his peers, this strange incident appeared in Matthew's gospel. Brief, unassuming, and it seems to vanish from the reader's memory somewhere around chapter 21. That's how subtle it is. So let's revisit Matthew 20, beginning with verse 20. The story goes, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of Jesus. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will, indeed, drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten, the other apprentices of Jesus, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Next week is Easter Sunday. It is the greatest, most significant celebration for disciples of Jesus, but not before Jesus suffers, not before he dies. And that's the work we have before us this evening, to prepare for Easter by way of the cross, for life by way of death. Now, turn just a few pages to the right to Matthew chapter 27, where we last left off in our study of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 27. There's a lot of ground to cover tonight, but you'll be fine. Are you guys awake? You with me? Great, thank you. Let's read Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 27. 
The story goes, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now, a a whole company of soldiers refers to a battalion. It's up to 600 Roman soldiers. So Matthew is creating this absurd visual dichotomy between the overpowering military might of Rome, the empire, and the apparent weakness uh, and singularity of this poor peasant rabbi, Jesus. Then look down at verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The scarlet tunic was a standard soldier's garb. So this is a bit of brilliant literary artistry on Matthew's part. The soldiers intend to mock this pathetic, hilariously overpowered would-be Messiah by draping him in a military cape, a soldier's cape. But in doing so, they figuratively coronate him as the true Messiah who is in this horrific scene, in the process of achieving true messianic glory. So they're mocking Jesus because the Jewish Messiah was presumed to be this great soldier who would overthrow the empire. And here he is, a pitiful would-be warrior against a battalion of Roman soldiers, and he refuses to fight back. And their mockery, ironically, recognizes Jesus as warrior Messiah in his nonviolent warfare against evil. He is a great warrior, just not the kind anyone was expecting. This, this suffering and impending death, is how the true Messiah actually accomplishes his victory. And the mockery continues in verse 29. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. And they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Jesus received injustice and abuse from the Jewish religious establishment. He was abandoned and denied by his own disciples, and now he is abused and denied by Roman political power and by ordinary Gentiles. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, It was not just high Roman power that was guilty in Jesus' passion. Ordinary Romans hurt Jesus as well. This was the one chance in the gospel for ordinary Gentiles to come through, but they too fail in a crunch. The masses, the common people, are no less sinners than the elites and the bourgeois. All have sinned. Total undependability. The story goes on in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross, which means that Jesus is in such physical agony and exhaustion that he is physically incapable of carrying his cross to the degree that his cruel Roman executioners don't bother forcing the issue. They can see that it has become an impossibility, so his physical state must have been really, really bad. And notice, none of Jesus' apprentices are present to volunteer for the task, to ease their master's suffering, even if just a little had they stuck by him. He has been abandoned by everyone so that a stranger has to help him drag his cross to his execution site. Verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, There, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. 
This wine concoction, we think, was likely some small concession for suffering criminals, even in the barbarism of this procedure. Crucifixion was designed to take a very long time. The victim, suspended by rope, or in this case by nails through the hands and feet, would typically asphyxiate slowly over the course of several agonizing days. So unable to lift themselves enough to draw breath, the victim would succumb to the comprehensive trauma over their entire bodies by suffocation or by shock or by heart attack or by thirst or by sepsis or by all of these things working together very, very slowly. Contrary to most artistic depictions, victims of crucifixion were always stripped naked to further their humiliation. This was a visual display of their powerlessness against the great power of Rome. One first century philosopher I read this week, Seneca the Younger, wrote that victims of crucifixion typically suffered a sharpened stick forced upward through their groin, creating this maddening struggle to suspend oneself against the exhaustion that inevitably lowered the victim down on the spike as they succumbed to their inability to stand. Another ancient Roman writer described crucifixion this way. They wrote, crucifixion is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. This was how people thought of crucifixion in the time and place when Jesus was crucified. In fact, the root word of our English word excruciating is literally out of crucifying. This particular method of execution was designed not only to dispose of troublemakers, there are easier ways to do that, but to inflict maximum physical, emotional, and psychological suffering and to do so in the public square so that any and all observers would be stricken with horror and fear, thus dissuading would-be criminals and quell would-be rebellions against Rome and the empire. So the wine gall, the mixture mentioned in verse 34, was likely, we think, a tiny, inadequate gesture of quasi-mercy in the midst of this unimaginable cruelty. The victim usually had a very long few days ahead of them, and the wine gall mixture could act as a mild anesthetic. But Jesus won't drink it. Matthew doesn't say why. It could have been that Jesus is unwilling to compromise his sobriety in so crucial a moment. He wants his wits about him. He wants to think clearly. It could be that Jesus decided to imbibe the complete suffering of the task before him in such uncompromising glory that he refuses even the smallest relief. And the story goes on. Verse 35. When they had crucified him, so horrific is the act that Matthew covers it with one line, half a sentence. When they had crucified him, they crucified him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. It's sort of like rolling dice. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Now this verse that they kept watch over him is particularly tragic because these guards are assigned to keep watch lest any of Jesus' followers come to rescue him from the cross. But really, there's no danger. No one is coming to rescue Jesus. Verse 37, above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, 
the king of the Jews. Again, the effort to mock Jesus becomes a beautiful irony in its accidental truth. Matthew is creating this incredible literary meta-masterpiece in which the tragedy of Jesus' execution is contrasted in real time by the glory of his victory. The reader is meant to be torn between these two overlapping realities, the horror and the shame of Jesus abandoned, ridiculed, and tortured, and dying in agony, and the awe-inspiring majesty of centuries of God's prophetic promises from Genesis to Malachi come to fruition in the most beautifully unexpected of ways. And Matthew is doing this by weaving in language from the Psalms, from the prophet Isaiah, throughout the Hebrew scriptures to demonstrate this is it. This is the serpent-crushing son of Eve from Genesis. This is the rescuing king of the Old Testament. This is the promised one. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Some of these illusions are obvious. Others are demonstrated with an incredible literary flourish in one subtle verse. Look down. This is my favorite one in the story. At verse 38, it says, Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, before this moment, back in chapter 20, Jesus said something strange and cryptic. Almost in passing, the mother of Zebedee's sons came and they asked a favor. What is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? This is a uh, metaphor for Jesus' suffering. We can, they answered. And Jesus said, you will drink from my cup, but... To sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. This moment of agony, this scene of suffering, has become the enthronement of Jesus the King. His crown is made of thorns. The praise due him is mockery. The recognition of his kingship is ironic. And the holy honor of being seated at his right and his left has been given by the Father to criminals deemed worthy of death. The mother of Zebedee's sons assumed that Jesus would enter his kingdom in the anticipated glory as Israel's king, but to share in Jesus' glory was not to stand beside him in military revolution and victory, but to share in his suffering and death. And the coronation continues. Verse 39 those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. This is actually a reference to an Old Testament promise. In that day, declares, declares sovereign Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The darkness 
represents God's anger and grief. It marks what the scriptures call the day of the Lord. And Matthew describes this moment with huge, sweeping, grandiose language to communicate to the reader the gravity of this thing that's happening. Matthew could be using something called apocalyptic Hebrew imagery to communicate the darkness of the moment with symbolism, or it could have been a strange and literal darkness over Palestine. We don't know. Either way, this is it. This is the moment. Verse 46, about three in the afternoon, now Pause. Remember, this scene is unfolding concurrently with the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Three o'clock was the time when the daily lamb was brought into the temple. Matthew, again, weaving incredible literary tapestry of Old Testament imagery and symbols to proclaim that what John the Baptist said of Jesus is true. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 46 goes on. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and then he says in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And Matthew, for the first and last time in this biography of Jesus, documents that quotation not in Greek, which the rest of the gospel is written in, but in Aramaic. He's drawing unique attention to the sacredness of this moment and this statement to the degree that he must present the words exactly as Jesus said them. To take on the true horror of evil and justice and hell, Jesus must see it through to the harrowing pit of despair. Meaning Jesus' suffering is complete. If Jesus had felt enveloped in the loving comfort of God while on the cross... If he had been zen at peace, then his pivotal moment of confronting the darkness of evil and death would have been at least partially anesthetized. But Jesus is facing the true horror of physical, emotional, and spiritual dereliction. And this horror is so profound that many have rushed to excuse it away. Surely, they argue, surely Jesus didn't mean to say that he felt abandoned by God. To this, Bruner writes, Why can't we allow Jesus to say abandoned when he feels, thinks, sees, and believes himself abandoned? Jesus' loneliness is now complete. This is the deepest darkness of all. When God's presence goes, the lights go out. Jesus is not only surrounded by outward darkness, he does not inwardly feel God's presence at all. He dies before he dies. This is Jesus' descent into hell. Don't many of us know this felt experience to some extent in our own lives? This is why the author of Hebrews would later write, as a comfort to the church, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. So, Bruner adds, Jesus' last words before death teach us the gospel within the gospel. They tell us that Jesus took on our abandonment, our questions, our feelings of God's betrayal, our most agonizing experiences, and still believed in the God he could feel and was surely tempted to disbelieve. And so the story goes on, verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran up and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. 
Um, as silly as it sounds, the Aramaic word Eli, which begins that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds like Elijah. So Elijah, who in the Old Testament doesn't die proper, if you know the story, he sort of rides off into heaven on a chariot. In Jewish folklore, Elijah could ride out of heaven to rescue troubled Israelites. And in a more biblically grounded worldview, Elijah was also prophesied to return and prepare the way for the Messiah. So thinking Jesus is suddenly screaming, Elijah, Elijah, has suddenly seized everyone's attention. They're like, oh, shoot, what's about to happen? But then in verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit or died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So in a sudden cataclysmic event, God demonstrates both judgment and salvation. The temple establishment, the religious institution of ancient Israel that conspired to kill Jesus, is condemned in a supernatural act of destruction. The curtain of the temple was this enormous heavy veil that closed off what was called the Holy of Holies. It was a sacred space that housed God's presence and was yet inaccessible to all but one male and then only once a year on a day called Yom Kippur. And it was this whole thing. The high priest wore a rope around his leg so that if he died from the sheer magnitude of the experience of being inside the Holy of Holies in front of God's presence, the other guys could sort of pull his corpse out by the rope without dying too. So that would have been a huge drag. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Get it? He laughed. You laughed first. I appreciate that. I'm sorry, this is a really heavy teaching, so I'm really searching for jokes, and the only ones I could make are very dark. The point is that the tearing of the curtain was more than just a pronounced judgment on the temple establishment. It was a symbolic announcement of salvation for all people. The divide between God and humanity has been torn apart by Jesus. And then things get weirder. Look at this. The earth shook, the rocks split, verse 52, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now this is admittedly weird, even in a book that's already weird. So some scholars argue that Matthew is temporarily taking up ancient Jewish literary and ancient Jewish literary genre called apocalyptic. We don't have any parallel in modern literature. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or to reveal. In the Bible, an apocalypse is a, a revelation of a divine perspective. It is, in the language of Dr. Tim Mackey, written in a poetic, imaginative style, packed with symbolism and based on biblical design patterns. Now, the reason that some suspect a sudden apocalyptic flourish here is not because they simply can't believe that dead people came back to life. If you've got a problem with that, then spoiler alert, you're not going to like where this story is going. The reason is that the Bible also paints a picture of Jesus as the first fruits of resurrection, meaning the unique and the original instance of a dead person doing more than being resuscitated. So you have stories in the Gospels where Jesus goes to a dead person and brings them back to life. That is not what we call in theology a resurrection. That is a resuscitation. Resurrection is when someone dies, passes through death completely, and then is restored to life in a glorified state. 
and Jesus was the first one to do it. So it could be the case that Matthew, like Daniel in the Old Testament or like John in the book of Revelation, he's using this highly stylized symbolic imagery familiar to his Jewish readers who would recognize it for what it was to powerfully communicate that this is when Jesus was undoing death itself by his work on the cross. Or maybe they just got up and walked around after Jesus was raised to life. Either way, the same truth applies. And whether it's symbolic or literal, in the midst of this incredible succession of events, events darkness and earthquakes, a tor curtain torn, the tombs broke open, we read in verse 54, when the satyrian, the Roman soldier, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. As usual, in the presence of overwhelming doubt and disregard, Jesus manages to find belief in the most unlikely of places. Now, this is, in one sense, a small scene. For many, it was another isolated moment in history in the corner of the empire in which the powers that be quelled a would-be rebellion led by a no-name rabbi. And this really happened. Next week, we will talk about and celebrate an event that's legitimacy or lack thereof divides the entire world. But on this, the death of Jesus, the overwhelming majority of scholars and historians, whether they are Christian or non-Christian, they all agree this happened. Jesus of Nazareth was an actual person of history and he was executed by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate as an enemy of the state. A number of ancient sources outside of the New Testament and early Christian writings mention this. But my absolute favorite is a work of artistic blasphemy. Cam mentioned, mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. It's a piece of vandalism that was scratched in plaster as early as we think the first century. The image mocks an early Christian genuflected in worship before a man on a cross with the head of a mule. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. This is likely the earliest known image of Jesus or the Christian movement. And it's a parody. It's a mockery. In my estimation, this satire should be recognized by the church as an icon to inspire worship. It's hard to imagine an image that could capture the subversive beauty of this story with as much exquisite, sublime excellence. Everything about it makes perfect sense. Worshiping a criminal that was pathetically and humiliatingly brought to absolute ruin by the empire on the accusations of his own people is more than ridiculous. It borders on insane that a movement grew from ancient Judaism in which monotheists, people who believe in one God, and they would not even say the name of that God aloud, began to worship an executed criminal human as God himself frustrates the minds of historians bent on closing a profound gap in this bizarre story. How in the world did this happen? The early Christians abandoned their worldviews, their ways of life, for an executed criminal with nothing to gain for it but trouble, persecution, and even death. There was no global movement then 
There was no one that was just raised to believe these things like many of us were. There was no cultural pressure to buy into such a ridiculous oxymoron as a crucified Messiah. Swiss theologian Ulrich Luz points out, As the sent one of God and as the messianic king, Jesus is now, for outsiders, definitively destroyed. A messianic king on a cross who has not victoriously overcome, a miraculous healer who cannot rescue himself, an intimate of God whom God leaves in the lurch, a divine man who does not incarnate strength in life, this is a laughable figure. But something happened. Something happened that the world could not understand and Alexamenos worshipped the crucified criminal to the mockery of his peers, immortalized on the wall of some Roman home hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It makes perfect sense that this is wonderfully encapsulated in that little bit bit of graffiti and and vandalism, albeit small and mean-spirited. It is unintentionally theologically astute. This is part of the story. A story that began with a human project run off the rails by our own selfish brokenness. All of us contribute in ways big and small to the awful state of the world. So for God to remove evil, we'd have to be uprooted with it. And God didn't want to do that. And so God, the artist, began to introduce symbols and symbolic acts to his people that communicated both the awful toll of evil and the incredible graciousness of God. And these symbolic acts seem strange to the modern mind, like animal sacrifice. But to ancient Israel, God allowing an animal to die in the place of guilty humans was a visceral, tactile symbol of death as a consequence of sin and of God's mercy in sacrificing something other than us to remove that sin from our midst. As bizarre as it sounds now, a priest sprinkling the blood of an animal within the temple, blood that represented life, was a powerful symbol of God's costly sacrificial love as powerfully capable of removing evil and its consequences. And that was intended to shape the hearts and the minds of God's people so that by acting out these symbols again and again, they might become a people of justice who cared for the poor and the oppressed and who demonstrated God's kingship and great love to the entire world. But people, time and time again, prove incapable of goodness. The decomposing human project waits for a promised king, a rescuer, to succeed in Israel's failure and to realize their long-abandoned task of realizing God's gracious kingship over the world. And so God, the artist, lover of profound symbols and powerfully demonstrative imagery, brings his story to a harrowing apex in Jesus, who takes up the mantle of Israel's uh, long-awaited anointed king, but by serving And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, to give his life as a ransom for many. The sacrifice that demonstrates the destructive consequences of evil. The sacrifice that absorbs those consequences to rescue those who deserve to be destroyed by them. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas summarizes this perfectly. He wrote, we are spared because God refuses to have us lost. 
Such is God's justice. The story of Jesus' execution is so interlaced with meaningful irony that we can't unpack all of it in a single evening, or really even in a, in a single series. Jesus is mocked as a false king, and the mockery validates him as the suffering servant promised by the Hebrew prophets and the scriptures, validating rather than invalidating his kingship. Jesus is executed as an enemy of the state despite the fact that he had stirred no violent revolution, that he had spurned the expectation of a warrior Messiah. But... Jesus was an enemy of the state. Again, this from Hauerwas. He says, Pilate's inability to understand the politics of Jesus does not mean that Jesus is any less a threat to Rome. Rather, it means that the politics that Jesus represents is a more radical threat to Rome than Rome is capable of recognizing. Jesus' claims to be Israel's Messiah are discredited with ultimate finality when he is humiliated and executed as a criminal, when he dies. And yet, for hundreds of years of the Jesus movement, it is the humiliation, the execution, and death of Jesus that we believe vindicates him as God's chosen king. His throne is a torture stake Enthroned on his right and left, the places reserved by God himself are criminals who mock him. And I imagine Alex Zamanos, if ever he saw the etching meant to mock him, the crude scratches that depict him knelt, knelt as a fool before a humiliated false god, that Alex Zamanos might behold this blasphemous image as we might behold the crucified Christ in the stained glass windows of some beautiful cathedral. And seeing the image meant to humiliate both he and his master, Alexamenos might be drawn to worship, just as the image predicted. This happened, the crucifixion of Jesus. And this continues to happen, the worship of a crucified criminal. Theologian Karl Barth wrote, the passion of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of man's revealio and of God's wrath, yet also his mercy, did not take place in heaven or in some remote planet or even some world of ideas or ideals. It took place in our time in the center of the world history in which our human life is played out. God has come into our life in its utter loneliness and frightfulness. We are not left alone in this frightful world. Into this alien land, God has come to us. The crucifixion of Jesus is not an unexpected tragedy. It is the linchpin moment in the Bible's meta narrative to which centuries of writing and prophetic wisdom had been pointing all along, and it is brutal and ugly and small. Jesus, the would-be rebel, did not die at the center of some coliseum before the emperor surrounded by a roaring, bloodthirsty rabble. His death seemed decidedly less significant. He's taken outside the city. He's nailed naked to a crossbeam alongside no-name criminals, sticky with blood, the bright Palestinian sun on his torn flesh, flies gathering in his wounds, and he just dies. Life itself is wrought with chaotic patterns of unpredictability. In March of 2005, I squinted into the dark darkness of some concert venue in Hollywood and 
shook someone's hand for the first time. She told me her name was Abby. And 16 years later, we're still here. We have a family together. My children's lives, in a sense, unfold from a moment like that. Or from the moment that my now wife bought concert tickets. Or from the moment that I decided to learn how to play guitar. Or from the moment that my dad played me my first Aerosmith record. Or from the moment someone played it for him. Tragic or wonderful or momentous or benign, all of our lives forever oscillate in the unpredictable randomness of time and circumstance. And the Bible presents a portrait of God moving in and through chaos, active and involved, influencing but not controlling unilaterally. And yet, this master chess player with infinite wisdom and intelligence at his disposal, he plans and he acts in human history. And the greatest of these plans, the magnum opus of God himself, begins and ends in obscurity. And then, slowly, it blooms. That Jesus arrived, not in the throne rooms of high royalty, but amongst the manure of livestock. That he worked, not amongst the elite or the wealthy, but with his hands as a stonemason in a small village. That when he taught... When he spoke, there were people whose hearts were fanned to flame by the power and authority in his words. But even more people said, he's a liar, he's a nobody, he's insane. And that when he died, though God would see the world darken and the curtain torn, and really the world went on turning as a few criminals were tortured to death outside the city gates, business as usual in the Roman Empire. And then... The kingdom kept blooming. Jesus said it would be like yeast worked into dough or like a tiny seed that becomes a great tree. And here we are. For centuries, God pledged to do something about the awful state of things we call life in the world. And every step of this unfolding masterwork with every layer of creative genius and cosmic profundity, the world often overlooked it. It's not the kind of plan we'd have designed were it up to us. We would likely not have the king of the universe born in a manger, a king who came to serve rather than be served. We would never have dreamed of a crucified Messiah, the ironic death of God. But here we are. And of course, none of this means anything if this is the end of the story. But that is a conversation for next week. For now, before Good Friday, sit with this. Jesus died. Most of us look on those who have suffered greatly without being destroyed by their sorrow, those who have been made gracious and kind by the unkindness of life. We look on them and we recognize wisdom, we recognize an experience beyond us that might benefit us, that might hold us up when it comes our time to hurt. And so we seek people out who have suffered for their wisdom, for their insight, for their support. It's why women who are pregnant for the first time sit down with women who have already had kids and seek advice and wisdom. It's why experienced widows find new widows and console them. It's why the empathetic words of those who have lost loved ones cut through the superficial fog of platitudes 
and comfort the soul of someone navigating the same loss for the first time. Jesus suffered. He was humiliated. He was abandoned. Jesus felt as if he were forsaken by God. You have permission to do likewise. To suffer, to confront your own loneliness and humiliation, your felt sense of abandonment, and even the feeling that you have been forsaken by God. You have permission to cry out to God in your felt sense of abandonment, to ask the question, where are you? And God, in Jesus, will find you there in solidarity because he went there first. Jesus died, and so will we. And all would be lost if that were the end of the story. For now, would you guys stand with me as we pray and invite God's Spirit to come speak to us? Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.